Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hello and welcome to ATP Stories. Today we're going to look at the hotel and hospitality space. We're going to talk about multiculturalism, world travel, entrepreneurship in Japan in the ATP studio. Today I'm joined by the founder of BNA, the Bed and Art Project, which essentially has two hotels in Japan, which we'll talk about, one in Koenji and one in Kyoto. These hotels support local artists while at the same time provide a unique art experience for their guests. Yu Tazawa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Let's call you Taz yep. because that's the name you go by and you, as we said off tape, can be a little bit confusing <laughs> for people. You have to deal with the stupid jokes every time, right? I know, you've heard these so many times, right? Eye roll, <laughs> etc. All right, so Taz, okay, let, let's talk a little bit about BNA first, and then I think mm -hmm. it's really important for the listeners to understand your background and, and how all of this comes together. For me, I've got so many questions to ask you as well. We'll talk about why in a minute, but let's talk about what BNA is. So please describe mm -hmm. to us what your hotels are, so people can understand it from a, a non-business perspective. As a consumer, what is your hotel? So I have this slogan of uh, staying an art piece, supporting artists. So we're sort of a new kind of a hotel business that. Um, we're trying to involve the community of artists around us and support the community by showcasing the art piece, uh, not just that, by supporting them financially, by giving them a revenue share of the room. So if you stay in a, in a room, which was built by a local artist, um, part of the, the what, what you pay goes to the artists who created mm. that room. So it's not just pictures on the walls like you see in restaurants sometimes. You, the artists are actually designing the room. <laughs> Yeah, it's actually, we define the room as an art piece, so not as a decoration. Right. So the architect will actually talk to the, the artist from, um, build the room from scratch. So it's more of a collaboration between the architect, architect and, the, and the, the artist. Right, so does each room have a distinct theme, a distinct artist, or do you get artists to design the hotel? How does it work? So yeah, each room has a different, different local artist working ah. as a piece. Interesting. So describe to me one of your favorite rooms. I know obviously it's a bit unfair on all the other artists because you've got so many. Yeah, I, I, I should have <laughs> But describe to me, okay, one which, okay, let, let's turn that on its head a little bit. Just for me, you don't really know so much about my personality, but if I went to your hotel, which room would you recommend me based on my personality? I think we have a room by Ogi, this artist um, from Asagaya, which is right next to Koenji. Um, it's a little bit more conceptual than the other artists that we worked with. We worked with who were a little bit more on the streets, street art side. Um, yeah, the room is uh, filled with, by these chevron themes that are uh, uh, golden. It's, it's a golden ratio chevron. Oh, okay. And you got the whole whole room that's like all chevron, and then you got another section that's completely yellow. You've got this yellow world and the chevron world sort of interacting with each other. Um, and then you got his art pieces that are also light, light fixtures. So mm -hmm. he wanted his art to have a functionality. So if we actually work with the carpenters and um, the architect to create these pieces that will have the, the light inside that you can change, you can dim and, wow. yeah. So what do people say when they stay in that room? What kind of impression does it leave upon them? It's trippy to start with. <laughs> <laughs> and surprisingly um, relaxing for what it looks like on the photo. Right. Huh. Yeah. Because if it's like the the golden ratio, you're talking about like the mathematical, yeah, yeah, yeah. all that kind. Of, I don't even know how to describe it, but that sort of 
the patterns that appear sometimes in nature, sometimes in design and mm -hmm. so on. Yeah. Okay, but people come out of that and they said it's surprisingly re relaxing. That's interesting. Yeah. And do they, do they then sort of get interested in the artist? Is that for them a lot of uh, first time an introduction to that artist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, many of the artists that we work with are not exactly the fam famous. They're more up-and-coming right. young artists. Um, yeah, it's 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 uh, having a room as an art piece is a kind of an interesting experience because when you go to a gallery or museum, you mm. maybe spend like five, ten seconds with an art piece. If you like, if it's a famous piece, maybe you sit there for like three minutes, but you wouldn't really spend like twenty-four hours or even you know three or four days with yeah. it, right? Right. And you also see the art in different times of the, the day like you probably see the art differently before going back to going to bed and just before just just when you woke up mm -hmm. um, so you develop this relationship with the art that you probably wouldn't otherwise and of course that spurs interest in the artist himself and yeah. that's uh that's also a way of um giving an exposure to global audiences in a different way right so it's a more natural experience than walking yeah. around a gallery i mean galleries mm -hmm. are fine but it's for a lot of people it's kind of a sterile experience isn't it but you're yeah, kind of yeah. giving them something where they live in that what mm -hmm. i would be worried about taza is as mm -hmm. a customer you know as a a guest in your hotel you know okay this is an amazing experience i'm living in it but if i knock over that lampshade that's a thousand dollars i've just broken do you ever worry about those kind of things how do you deal with that because they're not just kind of breaking something that you can replace at ikea <laughs> you're breaking art right i mean how do you deal with that of course um as an as as my co-founder is an architect and and that's obviously a part of the concern but as we design it we obviously design it as a room mm. and has to be useful and uh, usable and make sure that it's not easily breakable right. and if we do we have insurance as well so it should be all right, <laughs> <laughs> all right how do you um okay so all right, so let's just talk about a little bit about these rooms so people can picture it if they're listening. Mm -hmm. So you've got the artist who's designed a room for mm -hmm. you. Do, is, has there only been... Okay, I've got a couple of questions. Has there ever been a case where an artist has designed something you thought, that's not going to work, but it really did work and it surprised you? And also, has there been cases where artists have really pushed the, the limits of what's possible. And, you know, you've just had to kind of, you know, because artists are creative people. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily exist in a box in a yeah, room. Yeah, yeah. So can you share some stories with us about that? I think different artists have very different approaches. And I think, as I said earlier, it's, it's more of a collaboration work between the architect and the artist. Mm -hmm. And most artists probably have never built a complete room where people have to stay. Yeah. A lot of artists just work with with a with a canvas with a wall, and it's it's really up to us or up to the architect to bring out their creativity and to create a uh, sort of uniform space uh, with a unifying theme that it's also livable and and comfortable. Mm. So we don't, yeah. Um, generally, what comes out has been great, and honestly, like the hotels that we have, like so far, are, are tiny, so we mm. haven't had any. Yeah, it's so far so good. But our <laughs> challenge is now expanding to hotels with much bigger, a much bigger number of rooms, which are working on right now. Um, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, we'll talk about your journey with BNA and what you've learned in the process from mm -hmm. the beginning to where you are in a minute. I think it's really important that people understand a bit about your background. Now, mm -hmm. put this into context. Anybody listening 
to you may think, I know you've got a Japanese sound, but you sound Spanish speaking English, <laughs> which is really weird. It's like you've got, and I know there, there are some South Americans who obviously have the Japanese lineage, you know, they, they've mm -hmm. maybe two generations ago, but you're not that. You're Japanese born and you've got this really interesting history where you've lived in the UK and Spain and America and you've got picked up this this exotic Spanish accent to English <laughs> and a Japanese face. It's just kind of like, let's put all this together. What do we need to know? Tell us, without giving us your life story, tell us a little bit about your background and the kind of places you've lived. So I was, I was originally born in Kobe, which is uh, uh, famous, for, famous for Kobe beef. Mm -hmm. And I moved to Barcelona when I was six well, with my dad, who uh, was doing his PhD in Barcelona for, for Catalan philology. Uh, to become a professor in Catalan culture. Mm -hmm. um, and I lived and went to a, a local Catalan school. So I picked up Catalan as my second language and then Spanish. Mm -hmm. um, after moving back to Japan, um, I, then I moved back to I moved to the UK for, in, uh, for an international school at United World College for the last two years of my high school. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to the States for um, a university and grad school at the University of Pennsylvania. Hmm. And after that, I came back to Japan. Right, right. And can I ask, how old are you now? I'm 30. So you're 30, and you mm -hmm. spent a lot of your life outside of Japan, right? Mm -hmm. Especially, yep. and interestingly, age six, you went to a Catalan school. Was it an international mm -hmm. school or was it a local school? No, it was a local Catalan school, yeah. <laughs> so it's not like you were learning Spanish, you were learning Catalan as well. Which yeah, I is... think I, I, I remember having maybe two hours of Spanish class right, a okay. week. <laughs> and everything else was Catalan. I imagine from age six, my, my son actually, age six, went into a Spanish school. So mm -hmm. I just, you know, curious to know your experience is that you went into a Catalan school. You learned Catalan. Do you speak fluent Catalan now without an accent? Yeah, I actually do, yeah. Right, because that kind of age, if you pick up a language... You sound like a local, right? When when you're older, obviously it's a lot different, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, because you, you never lose I, the. My, yeah, I think as, as language wise, I think my English is better than Catalan now. But um, right. accent wise, my Catalan is uh, Catalan accent is much better than my English accent. You don't speak with an English accent in Catalan, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> do, do you surprise local Catalan people when you know there's this Japanese face speaking fluent Catalan? Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of reaction do you get when you? It's like my, you know. Wherever I met, whenever I meet a Catalan person outside of Catalonia and I, sp I speak with them in Catalan, they're like, oh my God, you're my best friend. Let me buy you a drink. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I think it's really interesting about this because there's a really serious point to this as well. It's about culture and about you know growing up and about learning to live in those environments as well and how mm -hmm. that kind of creates an entrepreneur as well. Yeah. And I'll come to that in a minute. Your, your background as well, you've lived it obviously in Spain, well, in, in Catalonia, and you've lived in the UK and you've lived in the US and Japan. Mm -hmm. Do you ever, you know, when you think about yourself in terms of your identity, yeah. you, I know this is something that I think about because, you know, we've lived in, interestingly, we've lived in the UK, Spain and Japan. It's not so dissimilar mm -hmm. from yourself. How do you think about yourself? Do you think about yourself as, yeah, I'm Japanese and therefore I'm this? Or do you have a kind of a different view to most people? Same with like British people, I guess. But what, what about yourself when you think about these things? Oh, yeah, I do. I do feel Japanese the most, mm -hmm. but as I think is a common um, phenomenon for people like us, usually called third culture kids, 
we, as, I think as friends, we associate ourselves more with other third cultural kids right. than any particular single nationality, single culture person. Mm. So I would probably become better friends with somebody, let's say an Indian person who grew up in Kenya and Germany mm. versus a Japanese person who just, just grew up in Japan. There's a lot of shared experience there, isn't yeah. there? Do you find that that has some kind of impact on your entrepreneurial mindset? Because the reason I ask is, you know, we've mm -hmm. done, for ATP Stories, we've done over 100 interviews now. I'm based in Tokyo. My co-host, Michael, is based in Bangkok, but he's lived in Tokyo for 20 mm -hmm. years. And you're the second Japanese person we've had on this show, the second entrepreneur out of 100 plus. And here's the interesting thing, you know, if, if like me, you've grown up and Japan was always the world leader in technology. You had Sony, National, Panasonic, NEC, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and people always think Japan is a, a high-tech industry, high-tech country, which it is. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people are surprised when they come here and they then talk about high-tech and entrepreneurship is actually there's very few entrepreneurs by comparison to some of the countries you've lived in, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you feel with yourself? Do you feel a little bit different in terms of your approach to entrepreneurship than, you know, many of the average Japanese people around you? Yeah, I think in terms of background, having lived in different places, made me comfortable, obviously made me comfortable in, uh, to be in a new environment and also know that coming out of a uh, uncomfortable or challenging environment makes you stronger right mm. and at the same time i think having spent my time in the u.s has um has been crucial in my wanting to become an entrepreneur mm. and i uh once you see what what's going on over there and all the upsides of being an entrepreneur it's, it's hard to just work for somebody and i mm. think that's the challenge in japan is that you don't see those upsides too much around yes um you just don't see that many success stories, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you see the people like Masayoshi's son, but he, he's like a billionaire. He's like almost like a god, in not like a human being, right, to most people. Most people say, exactly. Who, who's like me, right? I'm just a, an engineer and I want to start my own startup, right? Who do I know, right? That's the problem. Exactly, yeah. There's not enough story. You say this, the upside. There's no, there's no real platform for the stories. That's why I want to share your story right because i think mm -hmm. it is the upside for people to look at that and say how oh, wow i can do that right yeah, yeah, yeah. okay i think yeah just go on no. sorry don't let me stop no, no, no. it's i think one, one thing that i wanted to point out in in, in japan is that it's not that we don't have like successful entrepreneurial companies and we definitely did i think masayoshi son is obviously one of them and gree and dna and those yahoo japan and all those companies made it but the problem is that you know stock options and shares weren't given out to um, employees like would, it would be in the States. So mm. companies that should have produced, uh, you know, thousands of millionaires just didn't. Right. You know? And this is still the case right now. A lot of um, startups, IPOs, like recent IPOs, you see the founders still having 70% of the shares. Yeah. Um, stock like option pool being maybe 1% or even less, you know. Mm. Uh, and they complain that um, smart people don't come to the venture world. And obviously, you know, it's you work for these companies, you pay a lot less than the companies that you can work, the bigger companies that you can work yeah. for, and you don't get the ret the returns that you deserve if even if the company exits. So yeah. there is a s 
sort of systematic pro structural problem there as well. Is that changing from your experience? The people you know around you, do you see change? I mean, entrepreneurship is a, a fashionable subject at the moment, but are, are there people starting their own business? Is there enough? Is there enough support? Is there enough cultural openness to taking risk in Japan? I think, yes, slowly. Slowly, I think it's, it's changing. Mm. But it, it, it's it's also interesting because I, I'm not in the I'm not in the tech domain, as to say. Like in, in when you when you talk about startups, it, you immediately think about tech, yeah. and and in that area, it's I think the growth is slow, but it's, it's the change change is happening in my domain, which is brick and mortar. Um, Japan has always been really, really entrepreneurial. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the support system has always been there. I think it's the easiest place to start a brick and mortar business. The government gives you two hundred thousand dollars with no personal collateral, or um, with, for like one percent loan. Mm. If you fail, you have to pay back. Right, that's right. why we have so many small cafes and small little boutiques, and and you know there's a lot of government grants that you can use as well. So in that sense, Japan has always been really entrepreneurial. Mm. It's just not in, in terms of this. Um, 100x uh, tech kind of thing hasn't really caught up. Well, why, I guess it's, why is that the case in Japan? I mean, you're completely right. I mean, there's so many small one-time stores, whether they're like a clothing <laughs> store or a cafe, as you said. Why is Japan really aggressive and you know in promoting that and helping these people, whereas they may not be the case in the tech side of things? What is it specifically about that? Um. I think those—I mean, those supports that you, you can actually use for tech as well. I think that it's when you start getting into more people's mindsets rather than mm. the systematic stuff. I feel right. Gotcha. Just on that note as well. I mean, this is an interesting part of your story, which doesn't make sense to me, but I'm sure does make sense in the grand scheme of things. You part own and run a hair salon in Jakarta. <laughs> I mean, it's not just a hair salon in Tokyo, it's a hair salon in Jakarta. We haven't even talked about Indonesia. So how does that all come together? Um, I've, always been, I've always been driven by, by experiences rather than topic. Yeah. Um, I'm a very intellectually curious person. And I'd like to understand sort of parts of the world or the society that I don't understand. So that's how I, so after I was an engineer in college and grad school and I went into business consulting because I wanted to get to know about business, which obviously runs the world. And when I, when I left, um, it's like I was, one of the things I want, always wanted to do is do something in the developing world because I always lived in the, uh, in the, the first walls per se. And I looked around Asia, my, one of my friends was running a business in Indonesia, so I tagged along and then I did the research and I thought, well, hair salon, high-end Japanese hair salon could do well mm. here. Mm. So the topic came later. Um, so I got the funds together and started the business then. It's been a very interesting experience, to say the least. Right, right. And everything I wanted to experience. Yeah, tell us about that experience because, you know, that that's a really interesting step into the unknown, isn't it? But it's not yeah. like you were... I mean, it is at risk, but it's not risky because you knew you had the, the consulting background, so you'd seen a lot of businesses. You mm -hmm. have this sort of cultural skill, if you like, that you mm -hmm. see. Okay, so Jakarta, Spain, UK. You, for you, it's like it, okay, you've been here before. You know how this works. It's a little bit different. You know, things look a bit different. People speak different languages, but that doesn't phase you. So you mm -hmm. you go to Jakarta, 
and you're now setting up this hair salon. What was the experience like for you? What did you learn? What did I learn? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so why, why did you do it in the first place? I know you said that you wanted to try it because you're curious, but why, you know, people must have been saying to you that, come on, Jakarta, hair salon, what do you know? This isn't going to work. Yeah, I don't know, to be honest. I, it's, it, it was just really time of, um, time of my life that I really wanted to change. I was working in a big consulting firm for three years, and mm. and I wanted, wanted to start a business. Um, I had started one business already. But I, I guess I really wanted something sort of out of the norm. Mm. And I, 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 that's, ex- I guess, exactly what I, what I got, you know. I had to strap... $100,000 around my body to go through a security bribing the <laughs> officers and <laughs> well, this is like a movie right yeah I'm I've seen this movie you know, way through like you know setting up the government every step is like a whole mess and there are rules there are no rules and it's yeah Did, so you, you actually had to strap this money to your body to get through to get it to bring the money into Jakarta to set this hair salon up in Jakarta yeah <laughs> I mean when you were doing that what were you did you ever think, what the hell am I doing? Yeah, many times. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you certainly got your out, out, out of the normal experience, right? Yeah. So you, you set up this hair salon and you learn a few things in the process. And how did that send, you know, where is the, the link into setting up BNA? At what sort of point in your timeline did that happen? You know, when did BNA happen? So basically, when I, while I still was in BCG, the first business I started was a Airbnb management company. Uh-huh. So I used to be a couch surfer. Um, I was a couch surfing ambassador in Philadelphia. So I liked hosting people in my home, and I couldn't do that as a professional because I didn't have time. But then I realized that there was this thing Airbnb and hasn't made it to Japan yet. Well, has just made it to Japan, and maybe yeah. there was fifty rooms in all of Japan. Um, so when, when, when I started hosting in my home, that was really successful. So I started renting out other homes and, you know, the, the, the typical Airbnb business, but I think I was probably the, one of the first in, in Japan. So that's how I sort of got into the hospitality business. Mm-hmm. And that was right about before I left BCG. Um, so that was in parallel to the whole Indonesia thing. And that, how that, um, became BNAs, I met my co-founder, one of the co-founders, Keigo, who's an architect, who's uh, worked in a lot of the off- like, uh, unicorn offices like Facebook office, Pinterest mm. office, Spotify office, and he's working in a couple of other unicorn offices right, now, right at this moment as well. And he's been using a lot of artists in his in design. Uh, we wanted to do something together on the Airbnb and art and architecture and we just did we didn't want to do just like a cool room but mm. since we had a lot of artist friends who were struggling we were like okay let's make it into like this new system where you stay and part of profit goes to the artist who created it mm. so that's how our project started how, um, how did you get the artist on board originally were, were they easy to get because they needed the exposure or was it difficult to sell the idea to them because for them it's you know they know canvas but they don't know rooms no it was it was really it, it wasn't it was really easy i mean it's more, more than the financial aspect of it i think artists are really drawn to this the how fun and interesting this project is mm. in creating this room it's a new challenge for them and artists always want a new challenge 
and it's different from everything that they've been doing. The scale is different. Mm -hmm. And also, we asked them to become a director rather than uh, a piece of a puzzle. Right. They come up with a concept and the carpenters and the constructors and the architects, they work around it. So a conductor, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how did you fund it originally? Was it just self-funded through the two founders or did you go out and get seed funding? Uh, it was self-funded. So it was me, Keigo, and Yuto, who's the other, the other guy that I run all my businesses together. Right. And yeah, so the three of us, we self-funded, DIY. I mean, it was one room, so it didn't cost that much. Okay, so you started money. with just one room at the beginning. Yeah. Okay, was that one room like an apartment or was it a room within a hotel? How did that work with just one room? One room in, a, in an apartment, yeah. Okay, so you had this concept room, if you like, which, yeah. which you were putting on Airbnb. That's how it started out. Yes. And how did that then go from one concept room into a hotel? So we always say that we sort of took in the lean concept into brick and mortar. Mm. So we, we, we had this idea. We put it up on Airbnb. I think that was our minimum value product. Yeah. And yeah, that did really, really well. So I think it was funny. It was we got picked up by El Decor magazine in France as one of the top three hotels that you should stay in Tokyo Excellent. after Ritz Carlton and Amman, like this one apartment room. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's when we realized that you know this, there really isn't any interesting hotels in Japan. It's right, all right. sort of the high end or the business hotels or the hostels. Right. Yeah. So you got that exposure, great that you got into the magazines. And how did you, did you then go out and lease a hotel or buy a hotel? or Because to step up from an MVP to a proper fully blown product, that's a big step, right? Especially if you're self-funding it. What was the journey like for you in doing that? So just to give you a context, the one in Kyoto is only three rooms. And the one we have in Coins right now, it's also just two rooms. So it's not, we haven't done massive sort of, full-size hotels yet we're mm -hmm. actually working on it right now we are building a couple right now mm -hmm. but um yeah the next one was basically what we realized is that what we are what we're asking the artists to do is to become a share owner of, of of the rooms and of the hotels and as you know airbnb the legal status is not exactly certain in right. japan yeah so i think as our uh, being the business side person bringing in the artists our responsibility is to run the business as long as we can and for that we decided to sort of get off airbnb and actually get hotel licenses mm. so that we can run these places for as long as we can so that was our kyoto project we got a big japanese house it was a hundred year old japanese house that we renovated by with nine different artists mm -hmm. and that for that we used a little bit of our own funding and also bank loans as I, as uh, that's as I said, it's super cheap in Japan. Yeah, yeah. And that went really, really well as well. And as you do it in a in a lean process, we talked with a lot of our customers in the process. And what we realized is that what they really want is the art is great and all, but they're more interested in the culture and the community and the people behind it. Hmm. So. Our final prototype is the Koenji one, which we built in Koenji because that's the most sort of cultural and artsy part of Tokyo. Yeah. Um, so when we met, we met Kenji, which is basically the center of the art community here, and he joined the team. Uh, we basically plugged into his artistic community, the hotel. Hmm. 
that's really interesting the way that you're building this you're you know you're building small scale high value high experience hotels so to speak and you're building mm-hmm. them through you know you're getting the artists to become stakeholders in that process as well whether that means they're sort of building the rooms or actually owning a part of it or you know sharing the revenues or whatever exactly so you're trying to minimize the risk at every stage and get people involved in the production mm-hmm. process because you know the whole production design thing is an expensive process yeah. you're, you're building out these hotels how do you actually market that because like you said with el deco magazine that that's great but you can't control that can you you can't you don't know when the next uh, you know, Monocle or the next El Decor is going to come in or the next whoever is going to come in and do a feature on you. You can't control that. So how do you go about getting people in and, you know, like there seems to be some sort of communication between you and your customers as well. So I'm curious to know how you actually do that beyond just being a traditional hotel or a traditional Airbnb host. What are you doing in the marketing process? It's actually been we haven't really done much and it's just the media came to us and since we opened in CoEngine last year I think we got featured over 100 different places different um, media including The Guardian and GQ and most of the Japanese TV stations most of the newspapers um, yeah we didn't really have to reach out too much we are, we're starting to reach out new, now uh, since we are actually developing the, the new hotels now mm-hmm. but uh, yeah I think as I said before, there aren't any really cool hotels in in Japan. So most of the influence, like the media people, when they come to Tokyo, they look for some somewhere interesting to to stay, right. and they just end up in a place to start with for them to, you know, to experience something interesting, and they like us and they just write about us. Mm. So that that that's sort of been really interesting because we've only got two rooms in Koenji, but the people who stay in it, I think seventy or eighty percent of them are creative uh, creative sort of influential people themselves, right. Um, and it's been great to have these people because you know it's, it's sort of a natural filtering process of um, of our guests and yeah yeah uh, yeah exactly your your customers are your best marketing it seems mm-hmm. right and you know the kind of people that you're getting through the door are people who are in the media business which is great right fantastic for yeah. the natural yeah. broadcast I think yeah. And I think that's that's where art really does well. And because if you think about how people look for hotels, they go to Booking.com on Expedia yeah. and they scroll through all these photos, and most of them just show a big building. Um, in our case, it's the, a photo of our of the room. Yeah, it's yeah. a big art piece, and you just jump out of the the screen, right? Different. And people exactly. who stop scrolling there, it's basically already um, filtered. Right. Uh, they're generally sort of influential and cool people. Yeah, it's important as well because you're focused on appealing to a specific type of customer because I imagine a lot of people don't like what you do and that's not a problem, right? And you don't care about that because you're not bothered with them. You're not trying to be everything to everybody. You're trying to be something to somebody, right? And that's really important for your marketing. You've got that and that's why that, that customer will come to your your hotel have a great experience and then tell the world about it right yes if if you were just a a hilton or an apa or whatever you would just give a a normal experience to the as many people as possible right 
Mm-hmm. But people don't talk about that. And they have to have these loyalty programs and all those kind of rewards programs to make people come back. But yours is different. You don't yep. need that because your experience is the program, right? That's mm-hmm. what gets people to come back. So how do you scale that? How do you take it to the next level? Because you have these two small scale hotels mm-hmm. and you're getting repeat customers and you're getting interest. How do you take it to the next level? What's the plan for stage two with this? So I think we found the product market fit and we have a, we have sort of, we have a product to show. So, you know, we, we did what every other setup would do is basically talking to investors, talking to developers. And right now we're, we're building two new hotels with a developer, mm-hmm. um, one in Tokyo and one in still undisclosed location somewhere in Japan. But the one is five rooms, the other is 30 something rooms. So much bigger than what we have now. Mm-hmm. And these ones are a management contract, so we don't have to put in any money of ourselves. They would develop everything, we design it, and we sort of manage the operations, and we get a fee for it. Mm. So I think that was a um, yeah great step for us to take without taking it, taking on the risk. Right. So has, has a hotel chain come to you and said, can you build as a concept hotel? Is that what's happened in this situation? Yeah, a real estate developer right, came okay. to us and... And at the same time, we're trying to raise funds um, of, uh, of ourselves so that we can do a master lease project. So instead of having a client, we want to rent a building ourselves and renovate it ourselves because we can be a little bit more experimental in those. The management contract at the end of the day is somebody else's um, money. So yeah. they are a client. So we are giving a lot of freedom, but we do have to think a lot more about um, – sure cash flow rather than some experimental stuff that we would like to do ourselves right but it's interesting that the way you're doing it because you can do both right you can exactly the contract that you have with the real estate company they're effectively bankrolling your learning process right they're mm-hmm. they're taking most of the risk in mm-hmm. you know buying the the building or leasing the building and then you know bringing you in on a fee basis i suppose yes or some kind of right and you learn a lot in that process and you also learn whether or not your your concept is scalable, right? You can go mm-hmm. from two to 30 rooms or whatever. And that then gives you a great case study to go back and raise funds. You say, hey, look, this worked here. You know, we can do the same here, but, you know, we'll own it. So we'll get all the revenues, right? So exactly. Interesting way of doing it. I don't know if that was the plan, but that seems to me the the lowest risk and the most clever way of doing it. But We'll give you credit for that if that's kind Thank of <laughs> whether or not it worked out like that. But there you go. So you, do you see in the future that, you know, this will go beyond Japan? Do you think, do you have it? I mean, with your cultural background, surely that must be something in your mind, right? That you could take course, this yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um That's always been our vision. Keigo is also actually, he was born and raised in the States and moved to Japan a couple of years ago. So we've always been talking about growing this internationally. Hmm. And yeah, we, we, we do get attention from, from international investors and actually we're getting some inquiries from cities, actually city governments who want to promote their art and for them. It's, it could be a, a, a sort of sustainable way of supporting the, hmm. their art, their art community by giving us uh, an unused real estate that they may have and developing in that into a, into a hotel. Right. Because we bring in audience and the money that they spend goes into the community and it keeps rolling. So it's 
it's much better than just giving out a grant that just gets spent in one year. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that that's kind of dumb money, isn't it? Just kind of giving yeah. out that. And, and I don't want you to give anything away, but I'm just going to speak for you here. But I imagine mm-hmm. Barcelona must be an amazing opportunity there, right? You speak Catalan; it has an amazing cultural history of mm-hmm. art and just public art as well. I mean, what I love about yeah. Barcelona is. Unlike a lot of cities, you can walk around and there's art in front of you, right? It's not mm-hmm. in galleries all the time. It's just there and buildings. And So I no, don't want to draw you to comment. but the top, top places. Sure. <laughs> <There> <laughs> Although they stopped giving out hotel licenses, I think, right now. There's right. too much tourism. Exactly. But, I mean, yeah. in terms of what you're doing, anywhere in the world would be interested in that. Let, let's talk about just in, in terms of, you know, bringing this full circle back to – Japanese entrepreneurs and mm-hmm. you know listening to your story I think Japanese entrepreneurs are, like we said earlier you're the upside in the sense that you know wh- whether or not you know it stories like this succeed long term the point mm-hmm. is it's somebody trying and somebody making an effort to design a life for themselves that they want to live right and do something mm-hmm. they can be passionate about and I think for Japanese people that really you know strikes a chord with them because so many you know it's a very creative society it's a very design focused society and people want to do this stuff but often they don't have the examples of the opportunities to go out and do this stuff and say okay i feel confident i can do this now if you first of all do you get japanese entrepreneurs come to you for advice because of what you're doing because you know you are um blazing a trail in a way for a lot of japanese do people reach out to you and say how do i do this yeah, we um they do, and what do you honestly, say? So, as I always say, there's no. I mean, there's not much risk associated with it. You can, as I said, there, there's money, public money that you can get to do it. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, as, as I said earlier, I think stuff like what I do is becoming more and more popular. Um, opening sort of design focused cafes or community sort of focused projects, real estate projects. I think younger people are, especially after the 3.11 earthquake, people are more, much more focused on like sort of small-scale community-based projects. Mm-hmm. So I see that part of the, the scene becoming bigger than the sort of big-picture uh, tech startups. Mm-hmm. I think that might something have to do with who we are as, as people. The Japanese are, tend to be more craftsman-like, a more small, closed community type people rather than sort of big picture. Hmm. But yeah, I, I do, I do see a lot of new projects coming out that, uh, yeah. But you know, you talk about being low risk and okay. There's free money effectively out there, whether mm-hmm. that's government money or 1% bank loans, it's free, right? It's pretty yeah. much, you know, low risk, but the risk beyond the financial side, I think is what I'm interested in is that, you know, if I was a salary man, Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about doing this thing. It seems to be like now a lot of the advice is about, you know, like side business, you know, start a business at the weekend type thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, it's almost like a hobby. Yeah. And it's kind of like, yeah, you can have the best of both worlds. You can have a comfortable salary and a reputable company career, and you can do a little bit of risk on the side. But mm-hmm. taking that step and actually starting your own business, I think that's the risk, isn't it? Because you have to leave all that stuff behind and say, right, I'm going to do this. If somebody came to you and said, hey, look, you know, I work for Sony. Mm-hmm. I want to do what you do. 
Shall I quit everything and just start or should I do this on the side? Well, how do I do this? How do I get started? Because there's such a big gap, isn't there, between being in salaried work and starting a business 100%. What would you advise? I think there's two points to this. I think first, I usually advise for them to start something, anything. It doesn't have to be... Um, it doesn't have to be your, what your passion. It could be anything. If it, uh, any small opportunity, mm-hmm. and as long as you're um, aware of new opportunities within that, as you do that, then that can develop in something that's more meaningful. For me, it was that was Airbnb. I never thought an Airbnb business would actually develop into a hotel, art hotel business that would be my passion. Mm-hmm. I did it because the opportunity was there. I was. It was easy to start as a, as a, as a side business. Um, you know, I think it's dangerous. I think it, it's very dangerous to start looking for your life passion and not start anything until you find that because many times you won't find it un- unless you, find, so you start something, anything. Right. That's really interesting, isn't it? That, it- yeah, that's what I usually say. And, and, and another part of what you said is that I think what one thing that's changing in Japan and like to change a y- younger people's minds mindset is that this whole big company thing before you would join Sony and you'd be set for life. But as you see recently, Toshiba is going down. Yep. Sony is going down. All these big corporations that were deemed indestructible are all going down. So I think this whole mindset of, okay, if I stay in this company, I'll be set for life. There's no risk associated in that. Um, rhetoric itself is it's it's changing slowly mm. but surely it's actually riskier to stay right that's what we're yeah. saying yeah great advice and i love that bit about saying that you know don't always you know focus on your passion because you know it's kind of a destination isn't it and you got to mm-hmm. just get moving like you've done momentum is so important isn't it when you get moving you find the answer rather than wait for the perfect situation to make your move because that will never happen will it you've got to take a step in more or less the right direction first and then Mm -hmm. opportunity comes to you doesn't it and that opportunity creates the energy which takes you towards your passion right yeah it's just you just have to be open as when once you start something you just have to be open about changing that something or the opportunity that 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 thing that you're doing brings you know for sure well that's you, Tazu, Tazu, everybody, and you know, founder of BNA, the Bed and Art Project, and you can go mm-hmm. and check out his two hotels. We'll give some links in a minute before you go, but you know, I think it's a really inspiring story, especially for Japanese entrepreneurs as well, because I think you know the, the challenge here is that. People need examples. People need stories. People need role models. You can give people facts. You can give people mm-hmm. numbers, but they hear Taz's story and that's the seed planted in their head that then grows, you know, and becomes an opportunity for them. That's what's going to make change with them. So just coming here and sharing your story, I think will help people do that. Doesn't just have to be Japanese people. It's going to be anybody in the world, right? Anybody thinking of taking that step. So Taz, before you go, please share with us some links where we can find out more about you and BNA and any other kind of projects that you're involved in. Cause I'm sure people want to reach out and find out more about you. Um, our main website is bna-hotel.com. Uh, you can j- jump to our corporate website there as well. Um, my hair salon is Hair Lounge Ryoji Sakate in Senopati, Jakarta. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And yeah, in BNA, we are we're actually raising funds right now. So if you're interested in investing in us, please reach out. <laughs> Excellent. I'm sure people will be in that space as well. So the best way to reach out for you, we'll put your details on LinkedIn as well, as well as the details for your project so people can get in contact with you. Tazu, thanks so much for coming on today. Really enjoyed talking thank to you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's it'd been be fun. fascinating. And would love to get an update as well, part two. Let's see how this develops, especially when you're building these new hotels, these new projects. Want to see how that goes, as well as your funding round, as well as any other projects that you take on in the future. It'd be great to have you back on and give us an update. Thank you. Hey, you should stop by. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.